damn it, that's not... Hold on. Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 14, and this is Masters Week. Before we get into this week's episode, we would like to thank Mitch Phillips for being the voice of reason around here. Check him out at mpvoice.com. He is a big supporter of the show. We appreciate all that he does for us around here. For those of you that are following us on Instagram, wait, wait a minute, you're not? Okay, listen. Go to Instagram, follow us at the Back of the Range Podcast. For those of you that have been following us recently, you would have seen our post this past Saturday. We were honored to spend the day talking to the living legend himself, Mr. Bob Toski. If you don't know who Bob Toski is, let me give you a little bit of information about him. He was the leading money winner on tour in 1954. He also won the World Championship of Golf that year. He's a five-time winner on the PGA Tour. He played in the Masters. He played in the PGA Championship. He played in the U.S. Open. You remember that iconic photo of Hogan hitting the one iron into 18 at Marion that everyone has seen? Yeah, that was at the 1950 U.S. Open. Toski was there. Tied for 20th that year. He shared some amazing stories with me for hours. Hogan, Nelson, Sneed, Jones, Hagen. Mr. Toski had a story or a one-liner to share on all of them. And at the age of 91, well, he's an absolute treasure. I cannot wait to get that episode posted, so stay tuned for it. This would also be a great time for me to remind you to please leave a review for the podcast in Apple Podcasts, and please share it with your friends. If you're enjoying this, spread the word. I can't thank you all enough for the support thus far, and as long as everyone's enjoying it so far, I'll keep bringing you episodes each and every week. That being said, if you want to get caught up on all the previous episodes, the hub of the podcast is www.thebackoftherange.com. So, this week's guest is Chip Brook from Bartow, Florida. We covered a ton of topics. We spoke about his time playing on the mini tours in California, uh, spoke about his time canning at Bandon Dunes and Streamsong, and we also got around to talking about his days playing in college. He is a reinstated amateur. He's found success on the state level and the national level as a mid-am. He's the 2016 Florida State Mid-Amateur Champion. And with Mark Dahl, he reached the semis at the U.S. 4-Ball in 2017. So, Chip, thanks for joining me here at the back of the range. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Glad to be here. So, um... So Chip, you're, you know, we've, we've competed together in, in state tournaments here in, in the state of Florida. You're uh, actually a little bit further North up in Bartow. So kind of give me a quick snapshot of how you got into the game of golf. Uh, well, my dad was, uh, my dad was a pretty good amateur player. Um, and you know, my first recollections of golf was he lived in, he lived in Clearwater and lived in a neighborhood called Feather Sound. And I can remember being, three, four, five years old, you know, out there kind of whacking the ball around. It was a sport nut. Um, so if there was a ball or a bat or a club or whatever, I, I wanted to do it. So I kind of got into golf through that. And then um, living, living in Florida and having, you know, my mom, I was raised by a single mom and we had 
bunch of old golf clubs in our garage and I'm just taking them out in the backyard and start kind of whacking it around and kind of that's where I found that I was pretty had pretty good hand-eye coordination because I could always hit it you know um never really had played a at that age at five six seven years old not like I was out playing like nine holes or anything but always had the ability just to kind of hit the ball so you mentioned that you pretty much got your start there so were you playing many junior tournaments when you um when you're when you're kind of getting started with it with the game or was it pretty much just like any high school experiences there or, or how did uh just you kind of get yourself into more of a structured golf environment because you know you're playing tournaments now having a lot of you know great success um what was your first taste in tournaments uh yeah i really uh i really didn't play a lot of junior stuff um my mom married married a doctor when i was about 10 or 11 and we moved into this uh gated community called deerwood up in jacksonville sure and we were members of a club beautiful neighborhood and had all all the amenities you want and i used to just ride my bike up with my golf clubs on my bag the single strap days before the double strap and uh through the 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 country club you know junior golf uh camps and whatnot uh one of the first tournaments i ever played in was a junior club championship at deerwood and i shot a 41 and won i think i was probably 10 maybe 10 or 11 there you go and that was like the first other than playing in like father son stuff with my dad that was like the first taste of uh of playing in tournaments um but the truth is at that age my golf was probably my fourth favorite sport it was just something that you know i'm 42 years old so pretty much the exact same age as as tiger woods so really the golf boom there really wasn't one um you know, and it was just, I was a base, I love baseball and basketball and tennis and, uh, and football. Yeah. We've had a lot of, a lot of guests on the podcast where this is, uh, you know, this is not a uncommon story. Uh, a lot of baseball and football dominated the childhoods and then just golf just kind of happened. It's just something to do on the side. So you, so you're saying you really never had the inclination of just, I'm dropping everything and I'm just going to focus on being a golfer. No, not at all. And my, you know, we, I joke sometimes with my dad. You know, and he's like, if if in this day and age, if you were a 12 year old and if I saw what I saw when you were 12, you'd be at some academy somewhere. Sure. You wouldn't be playing any of these other sports. So I was definitely a a lover of team sports. I liked being a teammate. I like, you know, obviously competing. But at the same time, that individual aspect of of golf and tennis, too. I was a, I always I played a lot of tennis up until probably I was 10, 11 years old. Um that aspect where it's kind of all on you, I, I kind of gravitated toward liking that the most. So do you think you would have had the success in golf if you would have gone that route of, of, you know, jumping into one of those academies where it's just really very intensive, the interaction with the game and just really focused on just one solitary sport? Do you think you would have had the same success? You know, I mean, it, it's really hard to say. I probably, if anything, it would have helped me once I turned professional. Okay. Um, cause when I turned pro, I really didn't know what to do. I was like, okay, I'm a pro golfer now. So now what do I do? <laughs> you know, I didn't, my structure was, you know, you play, I played high school golf. AJGA was, was not a huge deal. Um, and I was living in Northern, going to high school in Northern Virginia. So yeah, I, I, there probably would have been some facets, 
but I could also knowing my personality, see myself at age 13 or 14 being like, okay, I'm, I'm completely burnt out of this. Sure. And I've seen it a bunch. Yeah. No, you're, I think everyone has, uh, with just exposure, overexposure to the game, just, you just kind of see it in some kids that just, it's just not going to last. So you, right. you played in high school, uh, collegiately. What did you do, uh, in, in college before you decided to turn professional? So I went to this, uh, junior college in Alabama. Uh, it was called central Alabama. And, you know, my, my upbringing, I bound, I went to a lot of different schools. I went to, I think nine schools in nine and 10 years from third grade to my senior year in high school. And it wasn't necessarily that I was a terrible, a terrible student, but just the, the lifestyle of being a, you know, living with a mom and a stepdad and then going to live with my dad and he traveled a bunch. There just wasn't a lot of structure there. And so I don't know if I ever was quite prepared for what college life had for me, but going to junior college was obviously an easy transition for me. And I show up at this town in Alabama and the first day I'm, I show up at the golf course, this kid who I'd never seen before walks up to me and he says, uh, Hey, are you any good? And I said, yeah, I think I'm pretty good. And he says, well, I just won the ping AJGA Myrtle beach. I said, wow, that's great. I didn't even know what it was. And this kid that was talking to me was Carl Peterson. There you go. And <laughs> he had, I guess, finished high school in, in North Carolina, but he's from Sweden. And so I guess he had to go to junior college. He ended up being a great player, obviously on tour, but went to NC state after a, a year or two at central. Yeah. And, uh, I looked around and, and we played nine holes and I was like, okay, so this seems pretty good. We had this other kid named Mark Tulo from Chile who played on the European tour. And I believe one, um, some on the challenge tour, something over there, an amazing player. And then we had two other kids that were, not necessarily dropouts from University of Georgia, but they'd gone to Georgia, couldn't make the grades, and had gone to junior college. So all of a sudden, I'm sitting on this team with a bunch of, of really good players, um, not necessarily the most stellar students, but uh, kind of gave me an opportunity to in, enjoy a smaller version of the college life. Um, and my my plan was to you know go there and then and then transfer on to somewhere else. Um, my dad had lived, was living in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, and Charleston seemed like a, a nice landing spot for me. So I ended up in, in Charleston and, uh, before I even had an opportunity to finish college, I had an opportunity to turn pro and, uh, being someone with, you know, my parents weren't wealthy by any means. And during that time of, of my life, there was not a lot of options financially for them to help me if I wanted to go to college. And I had a guy that was going to give me a little bit of money, thought I was pretty good. And I turned pro. So this is, so he, he basically bankrolled you to play the mini tours for a while, or how did, how did that whole thing come about? Well, uh, the story? Cause I, I know a lot of people that uh, are curious, you know, how does the how does that process begin? What's the, you know, without getting into every single detail, but you know, what is the, what are some of the details on how a, how you acquired the sponsor and you know, what, what they did for you? 
it's kind of a funny story. So I I meet this guy um, at Kiowa Island. I was a, a cart kid out at the uh, Turtle Point. And if you've ever been up there, it's there's a lot of wealthy people up there. Sure. And I had met this guy who was uh, owned some sort of sailboat company or this, that, and the other. And we played the ocean course one day. It was me and him and my dad. And I think I shot like 73 which on that particular day at the ocean course to me was felt like shooting like 61 because it was blown about 30 miles an hour. I think I made like six birdies. It was just one of those days where, you know, made a couple long putts and just played pretty well in my, in my eyes. Cause that course is one of the hardest courses or used to be certainly one of the hardest courses in the world. And we get done playing and, and me, my normal 22 or 21 year old self, we got done playing. I shook the guy's hand and I took off. Okay. And <laughs> so really? I, I didn't, I didn't realize what kind of, I didn't realize, you know, my dad had kind of set it up. I didn't realize like exactly what was going to happen. Um, oh, you didn't even know what you were walking into. You just thought it was, no, oh, you, no. you just thought it was a casual round of golf and you actually were basically auditioning for a sponsor. My, right. My dad had kind of said, Hey, you should see my son play more or less. Oh, okay. Okay. So, the guy, the guy kind of tells my, my dad, like, Hey, you know, would he like to go play? And if so, what does he want to do? You know, there's a golden bear tour and all of this stuff was happening. And when it was approached to me, I was, um, my, my girlfriend at the time, um, her parents had moved to California and my mom had actually lived in California. And so when the guy said, hey, do you want some money to turn pro? I basically said, well, do you care if I go to California? Because I really don't think that Charleston, South Carolina, which is a fabulous city, um, is the best place for me to try to be a professional because of, you know, I don't know how else to say this. But, I mean, I, I love to, to have just as much fun after midnight as I did when the sun was up. So I'm, I'm starting to understand what you're saying. So there, what you're there was too much of the uh, the local flavor. You needed to kind of get out in into a bubble is what you're saying. Correct. Correct. I mean, I realized that, you know, again, I have a I have a lot of friends that were in Charleston. We had a lot of fun and their their ba their bankrolls were a lot stronger to survive that kind of lifestyle than mine was for sure. And plus, I really wanted to I really wanted to be great. Right. And so I kind of knew like there's no way that I could try to manage both because I could go down to Charleston to have a beer and dinner. And the next thing you know, it's one thirty in the morning and I'm at a bar. Well, I was you know, just, you know, I was whatever. just going to say before we got before we moved on uh, in the in the in the, uh, this interview, before we moved on to the portion that we talked about your super serious professional career in California. Do you think you could give me just maybe a hypothetical evening in Charleston that you may or may not have experienced that might be, you know, somewhat what you're saying, you know, a little bit of crazy. I mean, I mean, hypothetically, we don't want to. Yeah. Hypothetically. Hypoth so let's, yeah. There, there's a place and I think I can say the name of it cause it doesn't exist anymore. But one of my favorite spots in Charleston was called Charlie's little bar. Oh, that's right across from the street. That's right across the street from where the church used to be. Right. Yes. Got yes. it. Okay. And, uh, so I, I was I was friends with some very popular people in that city, and we were at a bar one night, and this this bald dude walks in, and I happened to be wearing 
you know, probably shorts and a shirt with the Kiowa logo on it. And he's wearing like a shirt with the Augusta, Augusta national logo. And he starts talking about golf and this, that, and the other. And one of my buddies is there and it's like, Oh man, you, you know, this guy's unbelievable. And he really starts kind of like bragging me up or whatever. And the guy's like, uh, well, you know, we're staying at Kiowa. And I, what, I said, what do you mean? And he says, well, with the band, I said, what band? He says, stone temple pilots. He's like, we want to play golf tomorrow. You have my attention. And so I'm like, okay, the drummer, whoever the drummer is, um, and the, one of the managers and this other guy and, you know, Scott Whelan is the lead singer. I did not expect that I would see him. So fast forward to the following day, I'm excited. I'm telling everybody like, Hey man, I'm going to go, I'm going to the show tonight and I'm going to play golf with these dudes because, you know, having, having bands and managers and people show up at Kiwa to a common thing um you know james taylor i mean there's a bunch of guys lived out there and love to play golf out there yeah but this is 90s alternative and when you're this is 90s you know, th- th- this yeah, is our well, age I, like we're you yeah, and i are the same exactly. age you're, yeah this is like this is you know the, the height of it yeah correct yeah the height of it in one of my favorite bands and you know in 1995 i weighed 195 pounds and i had short hair and uh you know, everybody, I used to, people used to tell me all this time, I used to look like the guy from Stone Simple Pilots, and they were obviously one of my favorite bands. So I'm super stoked, the whole thing, ready to go. And we come up to play golf the next day. It's like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, no pre-cell phone, the phone rings in the pro shop. Guy hollers out, hey, Chip, you got a phone call. I go up, and it's the manager, I can't remember his name. And he's like, hey, man. We can't find Scott. <laughs> oh shit! So we gotta. Uh, my drummer's got, wants to come out and hit some balls. He's asked if you'd give him a lesson, but like we gotta find him. Apparently, he was. You know, he'd gotten out. Okay, so so this was the afternoon, but they had a show that night. Yes. That you were gonna go to. Yes, that I went to. That you went to. Okay, well, all right. Oh, they found him. Okay, they found him. All right. They found him. Um, the drummer came out, hit some balls. We BS for a little bit, but you could tell he was kind of concerned. I don't, I don't know what exactly happened. Sure. What was what was interesting and kind of what you said about Charleston is he had come to Charleston, apparently doing pretty well, and just kind of Charleston got the best of him. Yeah. Which in those in the nineties downtown Charleston, I mean, I I think it's a little different than than I mean, it's still a crazy party town, but those days it was pretty wide open to say the least. I mean, bars would stay open until four o'clock at night every night, but Saturday, because wow. of the ch- the church thing. But anyway, so that was uh, that was that was kind of a funny experience to say the least, just from a random night in Charleston with a Kiowa shirt. It's amazing what'll happen. Oh yeah, so so <laughs> so you you get out of Charleston in one piece. You go out to California, and so you have your sponsor. You you have a, a you know have a a backer to kind of play these mini tours. Um, mm-hmm. which, uh, was it a specific mini tour that you played or were you just kind of bouncing around with Monday qualifiers and, and kind of stayed open? How, how was, what was, yeah. that, what was your well, setup out there? Well, what had happened, what, um, what happened was I had never done this really before. And I, and he kind of said, well, what are you going to play in? I'll just pay for the stuff you play in. Well, I move out there and realize, well, I got to. I got to pay like rent and stuff and yeah. bills and all this. So I ended up getting a job at a, at a golf resort in Palm desert called desert willow. 
Okay. And my deal with this guy was that I'll get I'll get a job at this golf course and I'll do like the be like an apprentice and then you pay for all my tournaments. And then if I get to a certain point, you know, we'll go further because I what what I didn't realize is that it's a fifty, sixty thousand dollar commitment minimum of yeah. anybody that's gonna offer you money. And this guy was like, Here's fifteen thousand. I was like, Oh, no problem. I'll be you know, I'll go Monday qualify and be on tour in no time. I mean, I was so naive to, you know, A, how hard it is and B, how good I wasn't. Um, I mean, I was good, but, you know, sh- shooting 64, yes, shooting 64 followed by a 63 and then another 65, you know, I was I was not at that level, nor did I, you know, and that, and that happens a lot. People are like, oh, you know, my son's really good or you're really good. You should go turn pro. Well, when you're out there playing against guys who are playing for their mortgage, their cars, their lives, and you're just kind of on a on an open checkbook, you know, it's a, it's a hard dose of reality. Yeah. But and- fortunately, for, but fortunately for me, I had a job, and at the first couple of years, that job allowed me kind of stress free to kind of play. So I played a lot of. There was a tour out there called the Pepsi Tour. There was the Golden State Tour. Um, the state open. And then because I was a member of the Southern California PGA, I could play in some of those things. And I basically parlayed that into winning a tournament at my home course and then shooting 62 in a summer series event at a place called Desert Falls, set the course record on the final day. And three days later, I have, I had guys basically saying, you need to quit this job and I'm going to pay for, you know, everything. And that's kind of when that is when the gateway tour came about. Sure. Okay. Now, if you remember gateway computers in 1999, 2000, I think I have one one in the corner of the office here. It might, might have one around there. Well, you get one. If you join the gateway tour, they get, yeah, I got a, I I can't remember if I got a laptop or a laptop bag. Cause it was one of those things where you had to pay $16,000 in advance. Yep. Yep, very similar to the uh, to the Golden Bear down in South Florida. You just pay for it. You pay for the series of events, and you just pay up and up front the whole thing. You pay up front the whole thing, and if you can't make a tournament, they try to sell it for you. Right, whatever. right, right. So I had a guy that was going to pay for me to be on the tour, and then pay me a few more thousand dollars in expenses. And again, I completely underestimated the true cost of what it takes to do all of these things. But um, went out first tournament on the gateway tour played super nervous really tight because there was a lot of really good flooded with every all-american that came out of unlv was there like chris riley jeremy anderson charlie hoffman like big dogs and i was like okay this is this is the real deal this is what i want to see i want to find out how good i am really because i was playing a lot of little things and i could win but my goal wasn't to be a mini tour player i wanted to be on tour so show up first tournament miss the cut by shot played super nervous and could obviously pick six or seven shots that I left in the bag. So I said the next week, I'm just going to play carefree. Um, and I end up shooting like 65, 70 or six, 65, 71, 70, something like eight or nine under for the week for a three day. Got to play with, with Charlie Hoffman and Jason Allred the last day. You know, I felt pretty good about myself. Um, made a check, 
you know, sponsor was happy, come roaring into Q, you know, play the season, come roaring into Q school, ready to go. Cause for those younger guys listening back in the day, there was Q school for one tour only. Yep. And that was it. And you went and if you could make it the third stage, you had some status, but it was just a total free for all. And, uh, Went to first stage and played good, but had a had a 74 in the third round, and I missed it by probably four or five shots. You don't remember exactly, but it's kind of one of those things where, hey, it was my first full year out. No big deal. My sponsor was all on board, ready to keep going. And then 9-11 happened. And then the sponsor who was who told me that he had unlimited funds all of a sudden – all that stuff started changing. Yep. So he kind of said, here's some money, whatever it was. This will get you in like four or five more. Hopefully you can play your way into Q school. No hard feelings, you know, or whatever. And so again, another me being not really wise to the ways of the world and everything that really goes into being a professional golfer, which really the golf is the least of the things you have to be prepared for. Um, you know, that was, uh, that was kind of, you know, here's some money, go give it a shot. I'm living in California. I got friends left and right of me just killing it, making money in real estate and met a guy in a tournament in a pro-am at some tournament. And he was in the real estate business and I pretty much quit playing golf and went directly into real estate like just almost like snap of a finger because as you know you don't have any money to pay um to play in this tournament it's like what you know can't do what it. am i what are you gonna do like am i just gonna sit around and hit balls all day and just you know not to mention post 9 11 you know it's not like people were just ready to hand out money no I didn't really have any status. The Golden, um, the Gateway Tour, like I said, I'd had some success and made cuts and had a couple top probably 20s, but nothing nothing phenomenal. And, you know, when you're playing on one of these mini tours and you're just surrounded by, you know, guys that you're better than, but their funds are unlimited, you know, it can be discouraging, disheartening. So you, you mentioned that you basically competed alongside guys that did make it to the PGA tour, whether it's, uh, you know, Riley or Hoffman or, or I'm sure there's just kind of be countless other guys out there that, that, you know, listeners would know. So you just said it, I'm, I'm just going to repeat what you just said. You're, you're basically saying that sure, there are different levels of talent out there, but when you're on those mini tours and you're shooting the same scores that other guys shoot and they make it and you don't, do you think it's just mainly all about the set of circumstances and the support that they have around them that is really causing the big difference? You know, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, as I've grown older, it's a lot easier to look back and certainly not no regrets because I'm, I'm very happy with where I'm at in my life. But um, I would say that preparation for being prepared for what that life is I think is, is a lot. If I look back at anything, I would have 
done it over again, or if I was an advisor, if I was a sports agent that was dealing with golfers that were coming out of college that weren't, that were great players, I would, I would say, look, there's, there's a certain way that I think you need to go about this business. And one, it's your job. So I'll give you a perfect example of just the difference between me and a guy like Charlie Hoffman. Okay. So we're playing in a tournament a month. There's many differences, but this is one I can remember vastly. We're playing in a tournament at a place called Greyhawk. And I think I shoot 68 in the first round. And I don't remember what he shot. Um, we didn't play together, but we had played it. We had played in a couple practice rounds and we were paired together in a couple tournaments. So to say we were friends wouldn't, would be a stretch, but he knew who I was. We would say, hello, we pass each other on the range, whatever. Sure. And <clears throat> I get done playing golf and the guy I play with who shot 70, as soon as we get done, takes his bag off the cart and heads to the range. I go put my bag in the car. Um, I, you know, put my tennis shoes on and grab my putter and come out to roll a few just to kind of, you know, I felt like I putted pretty good that day or whatever. And I come out to the range and there's Charlie Hoffman with this, with this, uh, this box, like that a golf club would come in and he's on the range working on his takeaway and he's hitting balls next to, um, this dude. And I'm talking to a friend of mine and this dude comes walking down and, Hey man, how'd you play? He goes, ah, I shot nine because I should have shot 10 or should have shot 11. And I'd never seen this guy before. And I said, who is that? And he goes, that's uh, Robert Garagus. He's one of the best players out here. Mm-hmm. And, which he was. And then I was, I, I see Charlie. I wave. How'd you play? He goes, ah, I shot six, which <laughs> that's another thing you learn. Once you go on tour, you say, when you say a number, that, that means how many under. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is Garrig is shot. I'm assuming it's a par 72, but first for, yeah. okay. So, so 63, 63, 63 66. And I, I had 68. They're both going to practice. I'm going to downtown Scottsdale to have a beer because I don't tee off until one 30 the next day. There you go. Now, doesn't mean that I like, it's not like I went out and, you know, drank till three in the morning or whatever, but th- to me, your work was done. My work was done to them. They're like, well, I've only worked four hours today. This is a 10 hour a day job. Yeah. And you know, what, what I, when I, when I tell the stories about, you know, my experiences or I have friends that are wanting to turn pro who shouldn't, um, or I shouldn't say they should, because there's, there, you can never say never. But what I tell them is that, you know, all of those days that I played well and left, and let's just say over in the span of my career as a professional, there was 200 of the, 100 of those days, the tournament or just a day times four, there's 800 hours easy that I could have been on. Now, if I had those eight 800 hours back, do I think? changes you know there the circumstances would have been different who knows it would have certainly it would have it would have helped my chances sure to say the least and you know i can say that now because it's not that i don't want to say i didn't know any better but i really didn't know any better um you know the 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 fitness and the practice and all that again we're the same age all that stuff was coming about after everybody realized why tiger was beating him for 10 years and by the time they figured out he was so far ahead of them that it took until now 
for the balance and power to kind of change. Sure. That's what kind of, that's what kind of impact he had on the game. Um, so the, the preparation that these kids have, and I played against a couple of them in Pinehurst, they're so prepared for that life because they are playing, you know, 35 tournaments a year as juniors, 30 tournaments as, as amateurs. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just, that's just their life and they're prepared for it and they know how to deal with it. They know how to deal with success and failure. You know, I would deal with success by wanting to celebrate and deal with failure with wanting to drive off a bridge, you know, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> cause when you're, when, cause when you're a professional golfer and it's, and I'm sure you've heard other people say this, I mean, you, when it's bad, it is, I've never had a feeling like that because you're, Everybody that you know can go online and see what kind of day at work you had. Yep. And everybody has these expectations. And you have these high expectations of yourself. Well, and the and other problem, too, is when things are going sideways, unfortunately, putting in more work doesn't necessarily fix it. Correct. And, correct. That's, well, and that's a terrible feeling, uh, yes. you know, when, when you try harder and it makes it worse and you don't even know where you're at or where your problems are what's going on so or or you or you put on the work and everything feels great and you get on the first hole and you snap looking at a mouse yeah and then you're like okay <laughs> so i glad i spent this those is... yeah glad i spent those five hours working last night and... <laughs> so let me so let me put you in let me put you in this situation right now you are uh chip brook incorporated and you are in a financial situation where you run into a up-and-coming uh uh you know, collegiate player, you kind of see where things are going to go that maybe they're a sophomore or junior and they've had some success and you know, they're going to turn pro and you're in a position to, to, to sponsor this person. Um, I guess my, I guess we have lots of questions here I can go with. So question a is, would you even do this? Um, and if you did support this person and be and bankroll them, how would, how would you set up the arrangement? Like for, for listeners of this podcast that are considering turning professional, that are collegiate players, and they may have a similar situation. Some guy at the range or some guy at the club is gonna, is offering to bankroll them. What's the ideal situation for the player? What's the ideal situation for the investor? Um, you know what, what can you recommend in that situation for both sides? Well, I, I think from an investor standpoint, you know, it's not a great, it's not a good investment. Um, but what you're investing in is a person. So if I, you know, I'm, I'm 42 now. So I have a really good friend of mine just had a baby a couple months ago and I was honored enough to be their godparent. So let's say 20 years from now, or even now someone that's, that I, I care a lot about and I see has this talent and I want to help them. You know, I would really want to almost try and talk them out of doing it until I believed in what they were telling me. Sure. Because from my standpoint, as a, you know, plus two or three handicap, if I'm playing, if you're beating my brains in every day, then I'm interested. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay. For one. For two is, you know, this you're not going to catch certainly nowadays you're not going to catch lightning in a bottle the days of monday qualifying well i guess you can still monday but the days of you know q school and this that and the other and just all of a sudden getting getting somewhere or it's, it's so much harder now 
Um, and there's so much competition, but I know I'm getting off the question. No, so you're what fine. I would, you're totally fine. What I would, what I would tell a player, the first thing I was asked, are you, are you aware of what's going to be expected? And when I say what's expected, I don't mean necessarily scores. But if I hear, you know, if I go out to have a drink on a Saturday night and you're out there boozing it up, you know, that's not going to fly with me, especially if it's, you know, if I'm the one, like I said, spending the money. But what, what you really need to do is you need to make sure that do you have, I would probably have to assess, do I think they're good enough for one? And then if, if they're borderline, but they're hard workers, I would say quality of quality of, of, of competition versus quantity of tournaments. I know a lot of people believe the more they play. Um, I'm not a big believer in if you're trying to make it playing in one and two day events. Um, you know, there's a lot of four day tours out there that I hear a lot of guys complain about how expensive it is. But I would, I would, I would want my guy to be playing in the highest level of competition that he can afford to play in. Sure, because that's what you're trying to get to anyway. You're trying to get to those 72 hole uh, events in in the first place. So yeah, because up up until a few years ago, the Hooters Tour was still a really strong tour. I'm I'm somewhat friends um, with Russell Knox from Jacksonville, who's made an incredible, incredible. Uh, turn from being a mini tour guy that dominated the mini tours to probably a lifer on the PJ tour. He hits it so good. Sure. Um, and I, I would want to, to see kind of where, where that drive is. Um, what, what are your, what are your goals? And, and, and this is kind of what I expect. I expect that you're going to be giving me eight to 10 hours a day of golf. Um, I'm, you know, I don't care how good you are on a medicine ball or how much you can <laughs> lift, you know, I, and, you know, you're down in South Florida. So you, I mean, I'm sure you see it all the time. I mean, I, I get it. Being fit is very important, but you know, some of the, some of the, some of the guys that spend five hours in the gym and three hours on the range and they may look the best in the shirt, but they're shooting 73. Yeah. You the, know, I the, want the guy, the, the ball doesn't know what your body fat percentage is zero idea and you know i i kid with a guy like carl who could shoot 66 like it was the easiest thing in the world in college as a 19 year old and if you know how to get the ball in the hole there's there's a lot to be said for that sure um so yeah i mean i would i would for me to get behind a guy financially that wasn't a family member and I would, I would, I would need to see some serious ability to sh- to score, and a serious desire to be on the tour, on the PGA tour. Um, you know, from from a from a college player standpoint, from an up and comer, you know, you got to realize that getting a job. If you're a PGA Tour player, if you're a professional golfer, it's a job. And you know, if someone strokes, you know, if you have if you have money and, and the time the time that you're spending is is doing other things on the boat with your girlfriend, um, 
you know, this, that, you know, all the other distractions that could come, um, you know, you're not going to make it. Yes, there are guys like Anthony Kim, like Dustin Johnson, who can party all night and play and go shoot 62 with no sleep. But, you know, those guys, the Tommy Armors of the world, yeah, those are the one in a million. And it's funny how many guys will, will, will they'll reference guys like that when I'm like, you know, you, you want to be on tour, but you're having a beer with me at 1230 the night before a tournament, you know. And, and, you know, you can get away with it. You might have a stretch where you get away with it. But in the long run, the guys that are the guys that are out there that you're trying to compete with, not only are they better than you, but they're practicing harder than you every single day. Yeah. Yeah. You want so you want people that you want people that just have the 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 drive that just is undeniable where you just. Yeah. No, I totally I totally get it. So just to kind of pivot a little bit from from there. Any, anything as far as a college story you can share with, with Peterson or any other players that you've uh, came across in your college days? Did you see that uh, that Peterson had it or did? Carl was for sure the best college player I'd ever seen live. Um, you know, when at Central Alabama, we had this thing where we would when we would go play, if anybody shot 66, everybody on the team owed them 10 bucks big 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 spenders that we were but that was you know, 10 bucks and 10 bucks in college man that's uh it's a lot of money i mean in, well, my, in my day at the university yeah. of kansas uh 10 bucks got you two medium pizzas and two big cokes yeah exactly you can tell what kind of physical shape i was in in college anyway go ahead <laughs> yeah so the deal was anybody shoots 66 everybody on the team gives them 10 bucks i think we had eight guys and carl shot 66 like three times in a week so then the new story the new rule was if any of us shot 66 everybody had to give 10 bucks but carl now had to shoot 63 uh-huh. uh, but carl you knew there was you knew it because i don't know if you've ever seen him play live but he hits the his swing looks identical. He's a little bigger nowadays than he was then. Um, just soft little it. draw all the time, right? He just hit this little one yard draw, and it just it was it was just pure as can be. And what? he was a great putter in college, and then obviously went to the long putter, and it changed his life. Um, so but he, he was. So was he on? I'm sorry. Was was he on the long putter all throughout college, or when? Do you know when that? No, happened? no, okay. he, no. He was he was with a little. Uh, I think it was one of the like an 8802 kind of putter. Oh, okay. Wow. All right. Um, and but he had it. Um, got it. He had it, and I had played. And I don't know if you've lived in in Palm Beach, but the only other kid I ever played with that had it, and probably had more of it, was a kid named GW Cable. I don't know if you know GW. Um, he used to caddy for he, he used to caddy for Steve Marino, but he lives down in Palm Beach now. Um, he was the best junior golfer I ever saw up close, and was a legend in Northern Virginia. But he, but Carl had the ability, just like GW did, to just make just floods of birdies. And as an eighteen and nineteen year old, I mean, maybe nowadays these kids make shit tons but i mean you know in the day of the tour prestige or tour ballot or whatever if i had a round where i made 
four or five birdies, and that was a really good day. And that was something that Carl did just on command because he had so much control of his ball. I was a super, super long, aggressive hitter. And I used to swing 100, probably 125 miles an hour. And my game was power, 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 where he was, you know, I'd be in the woods, he'd be in the fairway, and we'd get up to the green, and he'd be eight feet, and he'd make birdie. You know, and I'm trying to get up and down. And I mean, you know, he he had that ability. He went to NC State when NC State was an absolute powerhouse. I mean, I guess they're still pretty. I don't follow follow college golf. No, well, they're but, they're they're D1. I mean, it's you know, big yeah. big D1. They're legit. Yeah, sure. ACC. When he was there. They when he went there, they were they had a couple guys that were were phenom amateurs and college players. And uh, I want to say he was he won NCAA regionals one year, but signed a wrong scorecard. I mean, he was that, he was that good. Obviously he played on tour, but that he was a guy that I saw as far as playing against in college, other than him, I, I really don't remember anybody because when we played in tournaments, we knew we were the best team. And that was whether we were playing Alabama or Auburn. Um, you know, that junior college team that I was on was, was, was a pretty special group of guys. Um, and, uh, you know, a couple of them turned out to be excellent, but sure. you know, that, that, that's kind of a little funny story that, you know, other than I, I'd hate to get Carl in trouble about, you know, playing pool in our boxer shorts and cowboy boots and stuff like that. <laughs> Cause when you're in the middle of Alabama, there is not a lot to do. <laughs> that's uh boy, that's a horrifying image. No offense, but God, yeah, that's just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, some amateur events, um, you know, play with some guys that were were really great college players. The guys who played at Wake Forest or Clemson, Charles Warren comes to mind, Justin Roof. But guys that never, I mean, they never really did a ton on tour, were huge names. Um, but back, you know, but back in those days, high school, golf, the way golf was as far as, you know, popularity, internet awareness is just way different. Everybody knew who Tiger was. A couple of years later, everybody knew who Sergio was, but really, you know, that the aspect of this game was so much different. Um, I mean, I love where it's at now. I love it. Uh, all, everything about it. It's just. Uh, well, um, you, you, you gave it the run, which, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's great that you're able to say that and, and do it and have the experiences that, you know, you, you, you had with it. But I mean, you got your amateur status back. You, you came back down to the state of Florida and uh, walk me through when you did get your amateur status back. So I got um, I got my amateur status back. I had moved to Oregon in uh, 2011. My dad ran the caddy program at Banna Dunes out there for about 15 years. Okay, and... that now you have my attention again. So you're you go from being a professional to Bandon, and you're caddying out there, and your dad is the caddy master. Yeah. Dad's the boss. So as you can imagine, every caddy there hated me, but I didn't care because my dad was the boss, you know? Well, um, I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> hey man, it's the hand I was dealt. Uh, hey, everybody would say, hey, what's it like getting really good loops? I'm like, it's great. It's great. <laughs> um, but yeah, so kind of, I was, I was, you know, done the real estate thing, lived in California. I had moved back to Florida after I had a couple kids. So me and my daughters decided, hey, let's go to Oregon. Let's get out of here for a while. And my dad was like, come on out and we'll figure something out. Maybe, you know, maybe, you know, uh, one of the courses is looking for a head pro. Maybe you could do that or just figure it out. So I'd moved out there and 
I didn't really want to do the pro thing. And, you know, obviously the caddying, it's, it's a really good way to make a lot of money quickly. And for me, with everything that I was going through at that time of my life, it was there couldn't have been a better therapy because I don't know if you've ever been to Bandon. It's one of the most amazing places in all of the world, certainly in the U.S. You've never invited me, Chip, so no, yeah. I have not been to Bandon. <laughs> it's worth every penny. It's worth the trip, and it's it doesn't have the prestige of, of the lure of Pebble, but in my opinion, it, it it's it's just it's on another level than even Pebble Beach. Um, and so I was out there caddying, you know, four or five days a week, walking this this beautiful course in Oregon. And it's, you know, 50 degrees every day and, you know, rainy and windy. And was caddying out there and decided to get my amateur status back and had called. And they said, when's the last time you played in a professional event? And I told them when. And they had pretty much said, OK, it will take about however long, six months or whatever. And during my time at Bandon, I had heard about this new resort in Florida called stream song. Mm-hmm. It was about to open. I saw it in a magazine. I was in Portland, you know, getting a week- weekend away with the kids and was at some hotel and picked up a magazine and saw this place stream song, tried to find a phone number and called and couldn't get anything. And <clears throat> finally reached out and got in touch with some guy that worked at Kemper sports and said, Hey man, I'm trying to get, I'm going through this divorce. And as soon as my divorce is final, I want to move back to Florida. And he says, well, we're going to open in December. And I was like, perfect. So I kind of went from being abandoned, caddying out there, interviewing for for the stream song job. And they hired me after about four or five interviews. That's a, hell of, boom, a, that's get, a hell of a two-course combination to go from abandoned right? band to stream. Mean, from abandoned to stream song. Yeah. I don't, like, I don't like my Mercedes. Let me just switch to Ferrari. Thanks. Yeah. 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 I mean, stream song is when I first got there, um, one, I couldn't believe where it was. Yeah. Um, and I was like, okay, well, where am I supposed to live? <laughs> and I, that's how I ended up in Bartow. Yeah. It's so funny. It's, it's so funny because, you know, stream songs great. I've, I've been there. I've played the blue and the red. I've not been to yeah. Bandon, but the picture, and I've not played the black yet at stream song and the pictures are amazing and the, the facilities are amazing. But I always tell people, I'm like, it's a little bit of a process to get there. It's a little bit of a thing, and they don't get it. And then, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, there's not a fully stocked gas station within 30 minutes. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So, the, like, the and with today's day and age of, like, you know, there's a, there's a Walmart and a Checkers and a and a, a bank and a Walgreens and a, and a, you know, an In-N-Out Wawa. Burger, a Wawa and In-N-Out. I mean, there's stuff you can't go anywhere. It seems to, without bumping into, you know, 37 banks and 20 pharmacies, this right. place is in the middle. When they say nowhere, it's nowhere. Oh, it's in the middle of nowhere. I, I was, uh, I was, I was blown away when I first saw it, when I first saw it, especially being hired as the caddy master, I was like, okay, this, this is incredible because the red, in my opinion, is is one of my favorite courses ever. Um, I love Core Crenshaw stuff. And when I first saw it, I was fortunate enough to have basically carte blanche to play it every day before it opened because the the clubhouse was was not completed yet. So my bosses, the head pro, there was only there was one head pro and the director of golf. They spent the majority of their days going to Sarasota to buy fixtures and clothes for the golf shop. 
So one of my first days there, the director of golf says, Hey, did you bring your clubs? I said, yeah, they're in my truck. And he said, okay, we're, you're playing 18 holes with a guy from USA today this afternoon. And I hope it's okay with you, but you got to play 36 tomorrow with somebody from golf digest and ESPN. Yeah. So, okay. So I literally played stream song probably four days a week for the six weeks prior to when we opened. Um, and you want to talk about, you know, this course was ready to go for a year before anybody even stepped foot on it. So, I mean, you couldn't even find a divot. It was like playing the most exclusive courses that I remember in Palm Springs where there would be like seven golfers a day, Yeah. you know, and the, and the assistant pros would drive around and pick up divots. Like this is it, what it reminded me of, not to mention the greens were probably 12. So I'm just like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. You're just like the and head, was, you're just like the head camp counselor, just basically the tour guy. Oh, just, yeah. Just, just, yeah. Drive around. Hey, you know, so-and-so. And then not to mention to top it off about a month, about three weeks prior to opening Alex Baselli, one of his buddies and some other guy um, from one of the golf magazines, myself and the director of golf are playing stream song blue. And I make a hole in one on the 13th hole, which is a par four. So I have the first hole in one ever at stream song and, it's and not, it was on a, and, it's and it a, was a double Eagle. Okay. <laughs> so that that's my, uh, that was kind of, that was definitely an amazing, amazing moment. And not to mention I had four witness, you know, I was playing in a five ball, so I can't even, can't even lie about that story. Um, Wow. And that was that was right up that was like right about a month prior, and uh, they gave me a hard time for a while. They're like, I don't know if it's a real hole in one since it's not open, but they talked to the owner and the oh owner gave God. me go oh ahead. Gosh, really? So, yeah. Yeah, I know. I they, they were just they were just giving me a hard time. But so you go from you know you go from band and you go to stream song. You make the first hole in one on the property, and it's a par yes. four. Yes. So, and so your life right now is just basically just, you know, one consistently never ending brand new, you know, sleeve of Pro V1s, right? It it was it it was crazy because after getting sleeves of range balls for about 3 years, I all of a sudden started getting pearls in every box I opened and it was Good it was God. crazy. And I even got a flag, Tom Doak signed a flag. <laughs> And said, I always dreamed that somebody would make a hole in one on this hole. I just didn't think it would be this fast. And he signed it, Tom Doak. And I still got the flag. It was pretty cool. Oh, my gosh. Um, so um, for, for people that are listening that want to go to Bandon, want to go to Streamsong, I'm sure there's tons and tons of things that they can know and look up online. But both courses are walking. Do you have any, like, kind of a hidden tip or anything that might not be easily researched online that you could pass along that you might want to know before you go to Bandon or before you go to Streamsong? It doesn't have to be some big elaborate thing, but something like yeah, that. Yeah, well, the the Bandon thing is, and I know this is going to sound like I'm some sort of millionaire, and I'm not, and I don't do it this way. But if you can afford to figure out a way to fly private out there with a group of guys, that's the best way to do it. Okay. Now, for those... For those regular schleps like me that have to fly coach, um, the best thing to do is if you go with a group of guys, try to fly in to the, the closest possible airport. Because what, what happens a lot is guys will fly into Portland and they'll be like, oh, it's only, you know, four and a half hours away. Well, it is if you're used to driving in Oregon and rain and these these windy roads along the Columbia River on a on the side of a cliff. 
And what happens is the pro the, the process to getting from Portland to Bandon takes a lot. So my my suggestion, if you're going to go to Bandon, if you can afford it, spend as much money as you can on airfare because you'll save a lot of time and pain trying to drive around. That's a awesome awesome tip. Now, as far as stream song goes, you know when I the funny thing about stream song is when they first built it. They're like, okay, it's in the middle of nowhere. But I think one thing that was which hurt them is they built a hotel that was so big. The hotel was kind of bigger than the golf course. Right. And that puts a lot of pressure on guys to sell out a hotel. But what will happen is guys will come and they'll play stream song and they'll stay at the hotel. And then they'll go to Tampa one night, maybe for dinner, or maybe they're flying out of Tampa. And as they're driving to Tampa, they realize, oh, shit, we can get here in an hour. And so the next time they come, maybe they stay in Tampa or maybe they stay in Lakeland. You know, maybe they stay an hour away versus not that the hotel isn't nice because it's an amazing hotel. It is. I've stayed there. It's excellent. Yeah, it's really cool. But as I'm sure you experienced, too, there's a lot of space there. But I think the idea of them building the hotel was they were going to have these giant conferences, you know, like these, these companies would come in, but once you get on the golf course, that's a golfer's paradise. That's yeah. for, that's for dudes that like to golf. It's not, and no offense to like reunion resort or any of those other places that have these conferences, like the world Marriott, <clears throat> you know, these courses aren't just hit and giggle and get on a car. This is for like guys that really like to play and appreciate architecture and blah, 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 blah. Um, and I think what happens is people will go to the hotel on a particular weekend and there's, you know, it's dead and everything's closed because, you know, it's the time of the year where maybe not everything's open or maybe they don't want to just be stuck at the hotel. Because once you're there, as you know, you know, nothing against Lakeland, but it's not like going to Lakeland is like going to Miami no, or no. going to Tampa and Tampa's fun the, the and Clearwater and St. Pete and you know, I think that's that's kind of, you know, the one thing that if Streamsong had to do it all over again, they would probably start with 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 more of a a cottage style ski lodge kind of golfers right. playground kind of place than a monstrosity of a hotel because it's hard to fill it's hard to go stay there because like you said, what are you going to do at night? Yeah, and the, and the other thing that I see there that Streamsong's doing is, I mean, I'm I'm on their mailing list, like I'm sure you are, and a lot of people are in, in Florida. It seems like we're always seeing those ninety nine dollar a night uh, resident rate deals, and yeah. I'm just thinking to myself, you know, if they were really killing it and really, you know, booked yeah. up all the time, I wouldn't be seeing that much of no, these offers. No. no, they basically are, and and it's a. It's it's one of the things I don't know how how much you know about Mike Kaiser, what kind of guy he is, but Mike Kaiser, who founded Bandon, you know, was a self-made billionaire. had a had a had a recycled greeting card company, and he sold it for a billion dollars. And he happened to love golf, and everything about Bandon Dunes that comes out because everything is less is more. Yep. He built he built a golf course and he had an end with 12 rooms and he built another course and added 40 rooms and they built a third course and added cottages and then built a fifth course 
you know, and so everything he's done is step by step. Not to mention Bannon is such a remote location that once you're there, you don't you're you're not really going anywhere else. It's like going to Scotland. I've never been to Scotland, but if I was going to St. Andrews for three or four days, you're pretty much hanging around in the town. And that's kind of how Bandon is. Bandon Bandon has a really ski lodge kind of feel. Okay. Where stream song is the golf is amazing. The golf is amazing, but it doesn't grab you like like a like abandon does as far as everything else about it. Not to mention abandon when you're done, you know, you're gonna you're gonna play. Um and then you're gonna drink beer while your feet are in ice and then you're gonna fall asleep. Yeah. And the one the one benefit that a place like Bandit has for all those that are looking to open resorts. Um <laughs> Bandon, their prime season, the sun is out for 16 hours a day. Stream song, street song, high season, the sun sets at six o'clock. Bandon is 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 the vision of a guy who owns it is paying for everything. Stream song is a vision of a guy who works for a big company who bought the place, but it's not really his. It's not you know he's not cutting all he ha- he has a boss. Sure. I certainly enjoyed a lot about it. And always have always have fond memories, and still have some really good friends that are still out there, whether caddying or working. Well, and that transitions yeah. perfect into uh, into a, a gentleman that you met there, who is your current four ball partner. In fact, you guys made it to the to the final match of the 2017 U.S. Four Ball at Pinehurst. Um, boy, just I don't even know where to begin here, but uh, go <laughs> go ahead, Mark Dull. Go ahead, Mark Dull. So, um, when I was at Streamsong, obviously as very early on as the caddy master at a place that big, you know, it was kind of a whirlwind first few months of just, uh, you know, trying to hire caddies, find, you know, the, the, the problem with the new resort is you kind of, you can't find out a caddy is terrible until he works for you. And you know, you're in the process of hiring a bunch of caddies and unfortunately have to firing guys because they they're terrible or they're drunk or whatever. They're stealing from guests or, you know, all the all the stereotypes that goes with the caddies. Sure. Um, you know, that's just part of it, whether whether you're abandoned where my dad had 300 caddies. And there certainly were plenty that were awesome dudes. But there's a lot of guys that were just kind of hanger on us. And so anyway, one day this this young tall kid walks in and um you know, says, I'm looking for a job and, uh, you know, I'm selling, he was like delivering flowers or something. I can't remember exactly what he was doing. So a job that he hated. And I said, well, have you ever caddy? He said, no, but you know, I'm a good player. And I said, you know, are you good with people? You know, the standard questions that I'd ask everybody, as long as you make it about the guests and you don't make it about yourself and you smell good and you show up, you're going to make a lot of money. I mean, it's not that hard. It's really hard to be bad, and it's really easy to be good. And if you can do, you know, just a couple things that are simple, and he was a good-looking kid, I said, you'll kill it out here. So, of course, I put him right, you know, he comes out, he caddies for a buddy of mine, and my buddy says, yeah, he knows his, he knows his shit, he's ready to go, whatever, I get him signed up, he starts caddying. And we had played a little bit together, but I kind of had a group of guys that were some of my best friends that I brought with me from band and the caddy for me. And I kind of had a standard four ball. If I played, those were the guys I was playing with. Right. And Mark, Mark was just dying to get in this game, dying to get in this game. And one of my buddies, 
Joey Lovell. Hope, hopefully you're listening. Who's now the GM at a place called Black Bowl in Montana. He moved to Montana. So that opened up a spot and Mark all of a sudden became our new four ball guy. He's the new Joey. He's the new Joey. And he, but unfortunately he's way better than Joe. Sorry, <laughs> okay. Joe. Um, and so we, we hit it off pretty good and we had some really good days where I would shoot low and win money or he would shoot low and win the money. And, and so a couple months later he says, Hey man, do you want to play in this state four ball qualifier? And I was like, sure. And I had not played in a tournament in 12 years, maybe. Oh, God. Um, and I had been an amateur, but I just hadn't played in anything. Yeah, you're just uh, playing your little, your, your money yeah, games. Just your money song. Ga- you know, yeah, my, You yeah. know, my, my kids were seven and eight and this, yeah, that, and the other. And I just, I, I just had no desire necessarily for that. Yeah, you're just scraping and, it around Band and Dunes and Stream Song all the time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, right, I'm just playing yeah. world-class resorts. Yeah. Why do I need to play in a tournament? Yeah, that makes sense. So... So Mark says, okay, well, we're going to play in this tournament. Um, and if we win it, we're exempt. But if we don't, we have to qualify. So we go play in this little four ball in Naples and shoot, you know, shoot like 10 or 11 under best ball for two days, but we don't win. We lose to uh, Jimmy Jones senior. Um, and some guy named Gordon Marshall. Maybe I can't remember. Anyway, he's a stick. I know. him. So then, so now we have to go qualify at, the palm course at disney and we proceed to go up there and shoot 61 so we were medalists and qualified for the state four ball which that year was at uh grand cypress and uh we finished third so i was like okay so him and i we really play well together and so we played a couple other things um tried to qualify for the u.s four ball one year at sarah bay and it was just a time where I had transitioned. I had just started a new job and was just had been working a ton. And, you know, Mark was catting a bunch and maybe not playing as much. And we just didn't play that well. And we didn't qualify. But that was for the very first one. <clears throat> and um, then whenever it was, a year and a half later, which was 2016, I guess, we tried it again at Golden Ocala and shot, I think, 65 i think or four can't remember but we qualified by two i think we shot 64 and qualified for pinehurst so as you know leading up to that i had won the state mid-amateur three months prior to those qualifying and mark the year before had made it all the way to the finals of the u.s mid yeah um so needless to say i was playing really good golf i was in a really happy place in my life um, Mark was playing good. And I think me, him, him playing well in the mid am really motivated me. And then me winning the state am really kind of motivated him in a healthy competition kind of way. Like I would, he's, I'm his biggest fan if he's playing something vice versa. Sure. You know, there's no animosity there, but it's, it's good to have somebody like that. And I really hadn't had, I really hadn't found a guy, even though I had friends that I played with it. Mark was a guy that if I played really well, I could still lose to. And there weren't a lot of guys that I played with that that's, that's, that happens. Certainly not as an amateur where I, in, the, in, in the crowds I was hanging in. <clears throat> so, um, you know, that led us to the four ball at Pinehurst. But, yeah, you know, Pinehurst was, for me, 
he had just, you know, he had just done, he had just, you know, just a year and a half prior had, had gone on this incredible run in a USJ event. And my, you know, I'd qualified for the, the same mid-am that he almost won. I actually qualified for that. Didn't, didn't play very well and didn't get to match play, unfortunately. Um, so I really hadn't got to experience that, but I felt really calm, you know, kind of going into the event. And when you're playing a course like Pinehurst number two, which was our first, that was our first day. And I'm not going to give you the, the shot for shot, but basically the funny thing about that store, that, that day was, you know, here we are us four ball Pinehurst. This golf course is so hard. You know, the greens are so fast. <clears throat> and we go into the stroke play portion of our very first round and Mark birdies one and two and I birdie three, four and five. There you go. And we are five and we are five under through five holes and we're walking to six. And my buddy who's caddying for me jokingly says, well, I guess we're playing match play. And we all kind of oh, chuckle Jesus. and he didn't jinx it. We played, we, we were fine the rest oh, okay. of the day, but okay. it was just, it was just one of those things where, holy cow, like we we can we can play this place. Yeah. And you know, there were you know, there's a lot of write ups about who was there and you know, Drew Love and some kids from Ohio State that I'm sure will be on tour and some kid who's fifteen who's qualified for the US Open. I mean, just just freaks everywhere. But we felt with our game, the way we play, that, you know, we could we could kind of make something happen. You guys are and, freaks too. Yeah. And we were um, pretty much every match we played was a pretty, pretty, we pretty much dominated with the exception of we had one match. And this is kind of the kind of an amazing story. So the guy that was caddying for Mark is a guy named Tim Tucker, who is currently and has been for over a year now, Bryson DeChambeau's caddy. And. Timmy Tucker worked for my dad at Bandon for years and is one of the best screen readers I've ever known. Um, he's been a part of Aimpoint. He's been a part of, of um, all kinds of different golf things that have to do a lot with golf and math because his, his brain's just wired that way. And he, had, he was caddying for Bryson DeChambeau. And him and Bryson needed a break from each other. And so he basically told Bryson, like, okay, I'm done for however long. And it just so happened that that breakup was in March. And I said, hey, Timmy, um, why don't you fly to North Carolina and caddy for me and Dole in the four ball? He's like, I'd love to. So he calls a buddy of his who's a caddy. And he gets us the books, the green books, for two and eight. Perfect. And I don't know if you've ever seen one of those. It's got arrows. It's got arrows everywhere. So Timmy had to explain to us how the book worked. But if you're playing a course like Pinehurst, where from the middle of the fairway, it looks like the green is the size of a dinner plate. But you can pull out a book and say, okay, the pin's here. But if I hit it 10 yards past the pin, it's a six degree slope coming back towards the hole. So I can be long, but I can't be short. And no doubt that helped us tremendously through the week because we were able to be very, very committed to hitting iron shots. Right. So you're not and just being precise. You're also knowing exactly where you can miss. We're and knowing where we yeah, can miss. Yeah. And I had made the decision from the beginning of the week that I was going to putt everything. 
I was off the green, I was putting. And for the most part, I hit a lot of greens that week. Um, I didn't hit any fairways. I mean, I was in the sand the whole time, but I had really 98% of the lies I had were great. And I had a lot of greens from the sand, but I did not, I couldn't find a fairway. And so anyway, we, we were playing in this match against these two kids that play at Loyola Marymount. I don't know if they were seniors, juniors in college, really good players. And Mark and I played really, really well. And we're one up. We're on the 18th hole. I am, I've got about a four footer for par. Mark's got like a 20 footer for birdie. And this kid has like a 60 footer from the back of the green for birdie. He hits his putt. I take off my visor because I'm getting ready to go shake the guy's hand because we beat him. And as I'm walking towards Mark, this ball comes over the hill and it's about 20 feet away from the hole. And I stop looking. And I'm looking at the crowd behind the 18th green. All of a sudden, there was, oh! And I'm like, you. I turn around and the kid's fist pumping. And he canned it on us. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, there, I don't wish any bad on any golfer, but like, that is. But you're not rooting you don't for make him. That putt. Yeah, yeah. You don't make that putt. And so all week in practice rounds and in, during the round, Mark had been not, Mark had not been hitting driver on number one for whatever reason, because. And um, I said, man, you got to hit driver on one. It's like, I'll make par. But, like, we are not – we're not losing to these guys. And Mark was dialed in at that point. He had the perfect amount of whatever he was drinking that day going. So he was focused and ready. And he just <laughs> smokes it. If you know Pinehurst, number one, after about 235 off the tee, it gets really tight. So I would just hit – I'd hit three iron in the fairway and it would leave me a pitching wedge or a nine iron depending on the pen pretty much every day that I we played Mark pipes one down there just perfect about 70 yards hits it four feet makes birdie we won and that match sent us into an afternoon match where we annihilated these guys I think we beat them five and three we were seven under and that got us to the to the final match uh the following day against uh Two 17-year-olds. One is committed to Alabama, and the other one's committed to SMU. And it was uh, it was an impressive display. I still – I hope we get to play them this year, I can tell you that. Yeah. But they were – when you – when you when I told you earlier about how I love where golf is, like you see those two kids play, and it's, it's exciting because a combination of talent, youth, and confidence is fun to watch. And those kids had all three. Like they know they're good, and I can remember, you know, you know the days where you, you're walking like that because you know you're good, and yep. and those kids had it, and uh, I took them, you know, took an, an 80 footer on the eighth hole and a 40 foot eagle putt to beat us, but I mean that's how you know that's yep. how golf goes, but it was a hell of a ride, and I mean I couldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to do it with anybody else, and we we just we really feed well off each other. And any time that he was ever in trouble, I bailed him out. And any time I was ever in trouble, he bailed me out. That's the way you got to do um, it in, in four ball. Yeah. But as far as uh, the, the, the shortest version, great Mark story, I can tell you, is before we were playing in the state four ball and had gone out um, that night before. And Mark and I got separated. And I, had, I was ready to go back to the hotel had no idea where he was and got back to the hotel, sent him a text and said, we tee off at nine 35. I'll have your clubs 
just make it if you can. And at about 4.30 in the morning, he comes comes into the hotel, doesn't know where his phone is, thinks he left it, like, on some grassy knoll somewhere. We play the tournament. We play around and go play the next day. And we're about to leave town. And I said, you sure you don't want to go downtown one more time and see if you can figure out where you might have had, like, put your phone down. And we end up driving by this fire station. And he's like, God, that hill looks familiar. And he runs over to the hill and there's his phone. Oh, God. <laughs> now, there's some things I can't say about how all that happened, but that, that was something that really uh, was a, was a, was a classic. And then the year, uh, the year we played in the four ball, the state four ball at stream song, I showed up one of the days, like three minutes before tea time. Oh, that's fun for your partner to see. Yeah. Yeah. And now time for a quick bucket. So, uh, wow. Just a lot of, (laughs) Really good stories. Let's let's get you out of here with uh, just a uh, couple of final questions. We have a segment here uh, called the Quick Bucket here at the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. So, real quick, uh, Tiger's fifth green jacket versus Jack's eighty-six victory in the Masters. Which would be the more impressive and substantial victory, in your opinion? Man, just knowing what I know now, I would say Tiger. But the eighty-six Masters kind of changed kind of got me into golf but tiger could come back and win a green jacket and blow up the internet oh god it would what i would love is for him to go to the press conference and just tell everybody there to off but he won't (laughs) because it's there's nothing worse than listening to people that have no idea what they're talking about talk about golf Hey, I mean, yeah, boy, I hate people that get on a microphone and just start talking about golf and they know what they're doing. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> I mean, no. anyway. I, I, that, that would be something. <laughs> I would be, I, it would blow up the internet and I would love it because for some reason, and I know you probably, it, like, I get it. Like, I'm a Miami Dolphins fan, so I don't like the Patriots. Like, I have a deep disdain for them. And it's really more jealousy than anything. But just for the amount of people that don't like golfers like i i just don't get that why would you root for someone not to do well but maybe that's because i played and i know how hard it is but uh the amount of people that like are hoping that they're right the tiger will never win again it's like yeah well that's i I don't i'm not a bit i'm not a big fan of that i i actually am kind of pleasantly surprised of how many people really are really are rooting for him i mean you don't hear a whole lot anymore about the scandals and, and all the, 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 you don't even hear a whole lot about the, the DUI, which is no. just, it's a fast, like I remember when that scandal hit and he did that totally awkward press conference that oh. was, I mean, everything stopped right there. And I was like, well, that's it. And then we're moving on. And, and now the, the, the DUI footage is on TV. That's pretty much done. I mean, it's over. So everyone just like everyone is just what can we do to get Tiger on the back nine on Sunday at Augusta going against one of these young guys? We're just we're willing it to happen. Ah, what? Yeah, I just want, I just want it to happen. I yeah. want it to happen. Yeah, I want. I would love to see it happen. I don't know if it will, but I would love to see. It. So well answered, Tiger Woods. Let's go to the um, next question. You can give a major championship to anyone in history. 
male, female, alive or dead, zero majors or 18 majors. You can't give it to yourself. Who would you give a major championship to? That is a good question. Um, you know, I would have loved to see, and I know he's got a couple. I would have loved to see Greg Norman win the Masters. Yeah, I mean that's, that's 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 that was kind of the first the first thought that came to my mind, just because of how great he was. He was kind of Tiger before Tiger. He just couldn't close the deal. I would have loved to see Greg win the Masters. Ninety six was one of the hardest things I've ever had. To, I was that was that was awful. Now I'm going to throw this option out at you. And you could either take this and change your answer, but how co- can you imagine what it would be like if Mark Dahl won the Masters and was there every year? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are uh, how how strict are they? That, what, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. So there's that one to think about. Um, that would be something. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah, I guess I could have gone with someone like that, but uh, no, like that's I said, well. Greg's Norman the, was Nor- the first thing that popped in my head. No, that's a great answer. Mine's more of a, mine's more just. Oh boy, that, that'd be. I would have no shortage of content if I can talk to Mark Dahl every year. So. Oh my God. But, um, well, um, again, appreciate the time, and um, and uh, we'll be seeing you at some of the tournaments around the state of Florida, and um, we'll do it again. You got it, man. Love to. And there you have it, another great episode here at the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. Special thanks to Chip Brook for joining us this week. We have a Masters giveaway contest going on right now on Instagram, so get over there today before the first round starts. Remember, you can find us on Instagram at the Back of the Range Podcast. We will see you next week at the Back of the Range.